If you have your Bibles this morning, let me encourage you to find the book of Romans. Romans chapter number 1. If you are our guest, you are coming at a wonderful, wonderful time to join us in a Bible study. Uh, We're going to be going through this letter to the Romans. Uh, We're starting today. I want to preach a series of messages through the book of Romans, a sermon series that I've entitled Romans, A Theology of the Gospel. Romans, A Theology of the Gospel. Of the gospel. When I approach the book of Romans, however, I approach it with just fear and trembling, David, if you want to know the truth. Uh, it is the longest uh, letter in the Bible that Paul wrote. It is most prominent. In fact, it is, some have considered it to be a theological masterpiece. Uh, it is a very intimidating book. I'm 48 years old. I'll be 49. I've been in ministry for tw- over 25 years. I've never preached completely through the book of Romans. And I'll tell you the reason why. It intimidates me, uh, if you want to know the truth. I mean, I, it, re- it reminds me, David, of a teacher, a kindergarten teacher, that stood up before her class and said, Look, I, I want to encourage you. Have you ever felt dumb? Does anybody in the class feel dumb? If you feel dumb, stand up right now. And as she was standing there, nobody in the class stood up. Finally, after several seconds, a little boy stood up, little Johnny, and as Johnny stood up, the teacher said, Johnny, said, do you really feel dumb? And the little Johnny looked at the teacher and said, no, ma'am, but I just couldn't stand watching you stand up there by yourself. <laughs> That's the way I feel I, I, many times. But as we approach this beautiful, wonderful letter to the church at Rome, I wanted this morning to, first of all, introduce the book. And then, second of all, I want to challenge you to do this. As I give you the overarching outline of the book of Romans today, I want to challenge you to read each of the sections that I'll be preaching through each and every week. Now, it's going to take me a while to preach through the book of Romans, but it in no way is going to take what it's taken some other preachers that have tried to preach through the book of Romans. Uh, There's one pastor, he preached 332 sermons through the book of Romans. I'm not planning on doing that. Uh, But we are going to go through it systematically, and I hope that you will enjoy it uh, as we walk through it together. When you look at the book of Romans, it is one of the most rarest books of the Bible because conservative and liberal commentators all agree the writer of the book of Romans is Paul. Paul wrote the book of Romans. And we called it a book, but we all know that it's really not a book. It's a a letter. We called it an epistle. Uh, in the Bible. In fact, your, your Bibles may say at the beginning, the epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Romans. Uh, many scholars have looked at this book and they've even labeled it as a, sub, a subcategory and they say that this is Paul's gospel. I want to push back on that just a little bit and say it's not Paul's gospel, it's God's gospel. And as it's God's gospel, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, is going to communicate to the church at Rome the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you look at this book, you see that uh, Paul had an administrative assistant that took down every word. In, in Romans chapter 16, in verse number 22, a man by the name of Tertullus wrote down the words that Paul spoke. He gives him a recognition at the end of the book, just thanking him and recognizing him as the writer. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God spoke to his heart, And he spoke, said, write this down, and Tertullus wrote it down. He wrote it actually from Corinth. 
We find that in Acts chapter 20 in verse 2 and 3. It was probably sometime around 56 to 58 A.D. Uh, just as he was about to go to Jerusalem, if you'll remember in the book of Acts, Paul was collecting an offering for the church at Jerusalem. And he was going to these Gentile churches and he was taking up this offering for them. And he was just about to take it to Jerusalem when his heart was burdened by the church at Rome and he wrote this letter. We also know that a lady by the name of Phoebe delivered the letter. The Bible tells us uh, that Phoebe uh, delivered the letter. She was someone that lived actually in uh, Corinth. And in, in Romans chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, we see that Phoebe, Phoebe is the one delivering the letter. Uh, what's fascinating about the city that Phoebe lived in, it was one of the most immoral cities in Corinth. It's an amazing city uh, of which culturally, uh, again, we've talked about this before when I preached through 1 Corinthians, uh, the, the city of Corinth was like Las Vegas. I mean, it was just absolutely was just the sin was over the top. And so Phoebe came out of that. Now, we're not quite sure what Phoebe was uh, when she was there in the city, but here's what we do know about Phoebe. She got saved, and she was radically changed to the point where God was using her in ministry to deliver this letter from Paul to the church at Rome. And as she did so, she did so uh, in danger of her life not knowing that in her purse was probably one of the most incredible explanations of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Phoebe is on her way to the church at Rome. Uh, we don't know how the church of Rome began. We're not sure. Uh, it is most certain that contrary to what Roman Catholic tradition believes, it is certainly not Peter that started it. Uh, we know this because we can read the Word of God and we can see in Acts chapter 2, the Bible tells us that the day of Pentecost, there were Jews there that day. And the, Jewish, the Jews that were there that heard the gospel got saved, and those Jews went to Rome, and somewhere, sometime, somehow, the church of Rome started with those missionaries. What's amazing to me is there are stories in the Bible that we're not going to have the full answer to until we get to heaven. But the fact of the matter is this. Peter didn't start the church at Rome. Paul didn't start the church at Rome. No one that we see his name that's mentioned in Scripture started the church at Rome. But somebody, an unnamed missionary, Hasiel, that received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord, God called them to another city, and in that city, much like what you're doing, planted a church right there in Rome that was thriving with the gospel. And we find that Paul's desire was to go and preach in Rome. Now, there, there's a lot of speculation as to why Paul wrote this letter. That's probably one of the most debated questions among theologians in regards to this letter to the church at Rome. Why in the world did Paul write this letter? Some have said that Paul wrote this letter because he needed Rome. He needed Rome. He needed Rome as a home base because after Rome he wanted to go to Spain. And he needed a church, he needed a home base, <clears throat> he needed a sending church to receive him accept him, 
and to send him out so he could continue to go to Rome. Antioch was just way too far. Uh, I want to push back on that just a little bit. When you read the context of the book of Romans from start to finish, you'll notice that it wasn't uh, that Paul needed Rome. We see that throughout the course of the Bible that Rome needed Jesus Christ. That's who Rome needed. Rome needed the Lord. As a matter of fact, when you read commentators, when they look at this question of why did Paul write the book of Romans to this specific church, the official uh, reason, the official reason by commentators is this, quote, nobody knows for certain. However, I want to give you one reason by reading through the book of Romans, I want to give you one reason why Paul wrote this book to this church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. When you look at the history of the Roman church, you see that it had four primary parts. The reason why Paul wrote to the church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God is because God spoke to him and told him to write to the church. But the history of the church has four major parts. Let me give them to you if I could. Number one, the first part is it started as a Jewish congregation. It started as a Jewish congregation. Now, in order to find this, again, you've got to go back to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost, the Bible says in chapter 10, there were Jews there. Those Jews heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, got saved. They traveled to Rome, and as they went to Rome, they started the church at Rome. And it was primarily a Jewish congregation. Then there was an emperor change. As the emperor began to change, we find that the Gentiles began to join the church, uh, and the church at Rome became a mixed congregation. It was a mixed congregation. They were Jews that were receiving Christ, and they were Gentiles that were receiving Christ. As a matter of fact, there were all kinds of nationalities that were in Rome, because remember, the saying is, all roads lead to Rome, and all roads come out from Rome. And so when you think about it, and you think about how people were coming into Rome and going out of Rome, when you see that it began as a Jewish congregation, and then number two, Gentiles began to join the church, and as the Gentiles began to join the church, Claudius was the emperor. And as Claudius was the emperor during this season of their life, there was an uproar amongst the Jews that were living in Rome. This uprising was over a man uh, by the name of Crestus. Crestus is what is believed to be another Roman name for Christ. And so Christ was the center of contention in Rome amongst the Jews. Again, this is not uncommon. This is something that should not cause us alarm because when you see any time Paul showing up, into a situation after he received the Lord Jesus Christ, and when he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, there was either a revival or a riot. And most of the time, it was both. And so the same thing was happening in Rome. There were Christians there presenting the gospel, and riots were beginning to happen. So much that Claudius got so upset, there were 40,000 Jews in Rome during this time. He said, that's it. I am finished with the Jews. They are done. Every one of them have to be expelled. And he threw out 40,000 Jews, saved 
and lost, threw them all out, even the ones at the church at Rome. All of a sudden, within a matter of weeks, as the Jews were expelled out of Rome, we find that a third area happens in this church. A third part. What's the third part? The church at Rome, not having any Jews, began to grow in its Gentile population and became a 100% Gentile congregation. So are you following me here? When you look at the history of the church at Rome, it started as a Jewish congregation. They reached out and Gentiles began to get saved and Gentiles started coming into the church. There's the second phase. And then there was an uproar during that second phase over Jesus Christ because these Gentiles are getting saved. And again, remember the center of debate at the Jerusalem Council concerning circumcision. And they decided under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God that God does not circumcise the outside. He circumcises the heart. And so as they continued to get saved, the church began to grow. The Jews that were not saved, that were continuing to follow Judaism, said, we don't like this, we hate it. And there was this uproar that was happening, and they were stirring, all this stirring in Rome. Claudius says, stop! All you Jews, get out. Every one of you, leave. And he kicks them out. But the church does not stop growing. The Gentiles take up the baton of the gospel and they begin to grow and grow and grow and grow. That's the third phase. And then the fourth phase. Claudius, the emperor, dissolves, is gone off the scene. And a man by the name of Nero becomes Caesar, the emperor. Nero comes in, and when Nero becomes emperor of Rome because of his grandiose plans for Rome, he looks around and he says, I want to invite the Jews back. He looks back and says, all the Jews that were expelled under Claudius' reign, you are welcome back into Rome. And they came back in the droves. They came back, and as they came back, They tried their best to get engaged in the church and join the church, but something different had happened. A new theology had sprung up in the church at Rome, a theology that exists today. A theology that if you were to get on an airplane and if you were to go over to uh, England and you were to be involved there, that it would be even more predominant than it is in the United States. And it is very predominant in the United States. It is the theology of replacement theology. Replacement theology basically said this. God allowed for the Jews to leave uh, the church at Rome And when they left the church at Rome, that was God's judgment upon Israel for rejecting Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Therefore, because God has rejected Israel, He has punished them and rejected them and has replaced all of the blessings, all of the prophecies. Everything has been replaced. It is no longer Israel as God's chosen people is now the Gentile church. And this teaching exists today, even in the United States of America, that God is done with Israel, 
that there is that the church is spiritual Israel and the church receives all of the blessing. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't take long when you read, especially the book of Daniel, you quickly find out. And also the book of Romans, you find out very quickly that God is not done with Israel. God has not cast them out. As a matter of fact, when you look at the book, the book actually climaxes uh, in chapter number 11. And in chapter number 11, we find uh, as uh, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, listen, in regards to this replacement theology, he says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. God forbid. For I also am an Israelite, the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. And we see verse 11 goes into this wonderful explanation of the fact that God is not done with Israel. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, writes this letter to the Romans to combat a false theology that existed in the church at Rome to say, look, it centers around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jews, Gentiles, it doesn't matter what nation you come from, Rome, Africa, Spain, it doesn't matter. The only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul deals with this as he writes this letter to the church at Rome. The outline of the church at Rome will fall something like this. The first thing we find in chapter number 1, verses 1 through 17, is Paul's introduction. Paul's introduction. When you look at Paul's introduction, you see he has a salutation in the first seven verses. Paul says, hello. Notice what he says there in the first seven verses. This will be the only verse that I read because I want to give you the rest of this with what little time that I have. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That is Paul's salutation in his introduction. Then in verses 8 through 15, we see personal communication. Personal communication. Paul simply says it's his desire to come be with them. Paul is introducing himself. The church doesn't know Paul. They've heard of him. They don't know him. So he's introducing himself to the congregation. Then in verse 16 and 17, we have the transition into the main theme. He transitions to the main theme where we see the key verse is verse number 16. Look at what the Bible says. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jews first and also for the Greeks. There's a reason why he puts the Jews first. Remember, he is defending the fact that God is not done with the Jews. He's not finished with them. Are the Jews still God's chosen people? Yes, he is still. The Jews are God's chosen people. But the Jews come to Jesus Christ just like you and I come to Jesus Christ. 
There's only one way to get to heaven. You can't be born a Jew and be guaranteed entrance into heaven. You must receive Jesus Christ. And so Paul, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, I'm not ashamed of this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone that receives Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes into the outline. When you look at the outline of the book of Romans, it falls basically into four parts. Let me give them to you very quickly. Remember this, chapter 16, the last chapter. The last chapter is Paul's conclusion. It's his conclusion. So what's the four points of the basic outline of the book of Romans? Number one, the first one is uh, condemnation. Paul first and foremost deals with condemnation. It starts in chapter 1 beginning in verse number 18 and that runs all the way chapter 3 in verse number 20. Paul says four things about condemnation. He says number one the heathens are condemned. We see that in verses 18 through 32 of chapter 1. The heathen is condemned. Number two the second thing he says is the moralist is condemned. That's chapter 2 verses 1 through 16. You can be a moral person all day long, but listen, Paul says, your morality will not get you in a right relationship with God. You are condemned. Number three, the third point, beginning in chapter 2, verses, starting in verse 17, running all the way to chapter 3, verse number 8, Paul deals with the Jew. He says the Jews are condemned, just like the moralist, just like the heathen. They are condemned just because they're born into the family of God doesn't mean a guarantee they're going to heaven. Why? Because they must receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. And then number four, beginning in verse chapter number three, picking up in verse number nine, all the way to verse number 20, he talks about the world. The world is condemned. The whole world is condemned. There is no living person on this planet that's not condemned. We are condemned and we fall under the condemnation of God and we are destined for death. Death is, death is the punishment for sin. And to die without Jesus Christ is to split hell wide open. He says we're all condemned. That's what Paul deals with first in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. Number 2, the second point. The second thing Paul deals with is salvation. Beginning in chapter 3 in verse number 21 and running all the way down to chapter number 8 in verse number 39, Paul deals with the fact of salvation. And in, in the fact of salvation, he says three things about salvation. Number one, the first thing he says is found in chapter 3 beginning in verse number 21 and it runs all the way to chapter 5 in verse number 21 and what he deals with there is justification. He deals with justification. He says, regarding your salvation, you have been justified by faith. Thank God for the justification that we receive in Jesus Christ. Now, I love justification, and I love the doctrine of justification. We like to talk about the doctrine of justification in these terms. Just as if I'd never sinned. So if we see that God's standard is holiness, and at the Creation, mankind was at that standard. He walked with God all in the cool of the day. God left Adam and God would go to the heavens, but he would come down and visit with man in the arena of holiness. 
but man sinned. And when man sinned, he fell below. He died. He spiritually died and was separated by God. God had made a promise that he would send a Messiah and that whosoever will can be saved. And through the gospel of Jesus Christ, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Many have said that when you receive Jesus Christ, you are justified, bringing you back up to the level of walking with God. But I want to push back on that a little bit and say justification is not just that. Remember, God lives in the heavenlies. And what we see in man's fall is that he was justified. If he was justified just as if he'd never sinned, he only goes back to the garden. But according to the doctrine of justification, you are in the heavenlies with God. So you have been justified. You may have been lower the scum of the earth. I'm talking about death on your way to hell. But God did not just as if you'd never sinned. He placed you in the heavenlies. Your name's written in the book of life. And when you die, you're not going to the grave. You're going to where Jesus is. You've been justified. Boy, that'll change your outlook on a dreary Sunday morning. I'm here to tell you. Justified. By the grace of God. Number two, there's a second thing he deals with. In chapter 6 and 7, he deals with sanctification. Sanctification. Remember, we've talked about this as we've talked through the book of Acts, as we uh, dealt with even 1 Corinthians. We talked about our relationship with God when we get saved and the tenses of salvation. You were saved when you received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. You were saved. If I were to die today, I'd go to heaven because I'm saved. 1 John 5, 13. All right, there's the first tense. And then I am being saved. I am being saved. I'm growing in my faith. I'm learning more about Jesus. I'm coming to know him more and more and more and more. And then one day when I die, whether it be by death or the rapture of the church, either one, I'll go either way. Either way, I don't mind. I will be saved from the very presence of sin. So it's sanctification. Number three, the third thing he deals with is preservation. Chapter 8. Chapter 8 deals with preservation. You, my friend, are preserved in Jesus Christ. Nothing. If you, if you got saved, you received Christ as Savior, nothing can separate you from the love of God. You are you, here you are, my little hand uh, signals, here you are. You are in Christ, and Christ is in God. Nothing can separate you from that connection. We're living in a culture today, some people say you can lose your salvation. No way, God's, God's more powerful than that. God can save to the uttermost. He deals with salvation. I'm out of time. I got two more. I got to give them to you or I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. Number three. Let me give you the third one. Beginning in chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 1, going all the way to chapter 11, verse 36, Paul deals with vindication. 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 Uh, we will be vindicated. In this arena of vindication, now remember, we're talking about Nero. Remember, Nero is coming into power now, and Paul's writing this letter. Nero did some good things at the beginning. Nero was a lot like, a lot like Hitler 
in the sense that Hitler did the automobile, created the autobahn. I mean, here's some good things that he did, but he snapped. He was the most wicked person on the planet. Same thing we see here with Nero. He did some good things, but then he snapped. The Holy Spirit of God knew this, and so uh, the Spirit of God speaking to Paul is going to communicate truth in the arena of salvation through this area of vindication, saying that you're going to suffer as a Christian. You're not just going to come to Jesus and everything be glorious and happy. But there are three things you've got to know about vindication. Number one, that there is divine sovereignty. God is sovereign. He allows things to happen. He allows it to happen. Good things and bad things. And and we're going to scratch our head as humans going, why do bad things happen to good people? I don't have all the answers other than it's God's sovereignty. God deals with that. He talks about it through Paul. He talks about the sovereignty of God. But watch this. I I love this. The sovereignty of God is chapter 9. And then he transitions to chapter uh, number 10. And chapter 10 is all about human responsibility. The whole chapter. Chapter 9, sovereignty of God. Chapter 10, the responsibility of man. We have a responsibility on how we respond to persecution, to salvation, in regards to what God wants to do in and through us, through His power, through His grace. He talks about human responsibility. And then chapter number 11, Paul deals with a merciful purpose. There is a merciful purpose. When you take the sovereignty of God and you take the responsibility of man and you bring them together, you see the purpose is merciful. And he deals with that in chapter number 11. And then here's the fourth and final thing, and I conclude. Number four, the fourth thing that Paul deals with in the letter to the Romans is exhortation. Exhortation. Chapter number uh, 12, chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, running all the way to uh, chapter 15, verse 33. And he deals with just basically, excuse me, he deals with four aspects of of this, of exhortation, exhorting them, encouraging them. Uh, Chapter 12 He he exhorts them in relationship to God, to yourself, and to others. We're going to see how Paul says loving God, loving others, and serving the world. Verse 13, or excuse me, chapter 13, I apologize. Chapter 13, he's going to exhort them in relationship to the state. There is a responsibility that you and I have. When it comes to the state, and there's a state has responsibility to us. Uh, Here's something that uh, is hard for us in the book of Romans, but it's true. The Bible says that that God has ordained government. They're in place. God ordained them. And it should not be our responsibility to make a mockery of the politicians that God has given us. And that's hard. Because I get frustrated in the current administration. He says our responsibility as Christians is to pray for them. We are to pray for them and we are to exercise the freedoms and liberty that God has given to us. And if we want to make a difference, we got to be the difference makers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God as we see it in Scripture. 
So he talks about our relationship to the state. Number three, here's the third one. He talks about, he exhorts them in relationship to weak brothers and sisters. Look, let's face it. We are all, every one of us here are at different spiritual ages in our lives. There's probably one of the greatest challenges a pastor experience week in and week out. It's his responsibility to speak to those that are new, brand new babies in Christ, but also speak to those that are fully mature in regards to their uh, salvation as they approach going home to be with Jesus. He says that we have a relationship with weaker brothers and sisters, and he exhorts them to love them. And then the last thing he, he exhorts them is in, is in relationship to ministry. He encourages them and challenges them to stay faithful in the ministry. Stay faithful in the ministry. And then he concludes in chapter number 16 at the very end. When you get to the end of the book of Romans, you see that Paul has created an amazing masterpiece under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God as he encourages the church of Rome to dispel replacement theology, to receive the word of God with grace, and to love God, love others, and serve the world. He closes by, with a benediction in Romans chapter 16 in verse 25 when he says this, Now to him, speaking of Jesus, who is able to establish you according to my gospel, talking about Christ's gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment for, of the everlasting God for obedience to faith, to God alone, wise, be glory, through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. God, through Paul, as he writes, simply says this. God is not done with the Jews. He's not done with Israel. God is not done with any nation. God has a plan, and he's got a plan for Israel. But God also has a plan for America. What's hard for us when we look at the biblical plan for America, we struggle because we don't see us in here. We don't see us. But what a challenge it should be to know that whatever happens in the United States of America, may it be said of the Christians, especially in northeast Georgia, at a little church called Maysville Baptist Church, may it be said of us that we embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ to, to take up the challenge that Jesus has given us in the Great Commission and that Paul has challenged us, challenged us with in relationship to the gospel of Jesus Christ and through the theology of the gospel that God has given us, we are going to endeavor to do everything in our power to love God, love others, and serve the world for His glory, His honor, and His praise. That is the book of Romans. That is the journey that we will be on over the next many weeks. You may be here today and maybe you've never trusted Christ as Savior. Dear friend, I want to give you that opportunity. Paul doesn't start with condemnation for no reason. He wants to make very clear 
that you must understand the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. Could we bow for prayer? Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as Savior. I would love to give you that opportunity today. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you would like to receive Jesus as your Savior, as Paul wrote to the church at Rome, you must confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you will be saved. From your heart to God's heart, friend, would you say something like this to the Lord right now? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Savior. And today I trust you as my personal Savior and Lord. Thank you for saving me. To the best of my ability, I repent of my sins and I trust you as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen.